Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with our Metro editor, Danny Grace, who helped me on a story this week about a Title IX lawsuit. Thanks for coming on, Danny. Yeah, thanks for having me. Former student Anika Rehan and her attorney Alex Zolkin held a press conference at the Westin Georgetown last Friday to discuss the lawsuit they filed in the D.C. District Court. More than a year after alumna and sexual assault survivor Anika Rehan launched a petition against her alleged assailant who was identified in the lawsuit as Mark Favorito calling for his expulsion. Anika is filing a lawsuit against the university alleging that they both mishandled her sexual violence case and also created a hostile environment for survivors on campus. This fall, Anika filed a federal Title IX complaint against the university, and that is through the Department of Education. And like this lawsuit, she also alleges that the university mishandled her case. Danny, can you walk me through this lawsuit? What are the counts? What are they asking for? In the complaint, Anika says the university caused a lot of emotional distress and created a very hostile culture for her as a survivor on campus. She said what she experienced was so severe and pervasive that it barred her access to different educational opportunities that she could have taken advantage of as a GW student. The Student Code of Conduct recommends that students found guilty of sexual violence should be suspended for one year and evicted from their residence halls. But Rehan's assailant received a deferred suspension. She said Gabe Slifka, the former director of the Student Rights and Responsibilities Office, failed to investigate and address her claims. And she she said that that led him to make the outcome a deferred suspension as opposed to a suspension. Right. And at the press conference, she said she didn't really understand what a deferred suspension actually was. She had to track down someone from the SRR office to explain to her what that meant, which she said was immediately infuriating. Anika said it was very upsetting to know that GW could acknowledge what happened, find him responsible, and then failed to actually suspend him. Also at the press conference, she went into what it was like to continue to go to school with Mark even after the assault had taken place. She described having to be in certain classes with him because they had similar majors and also described just the emotional distress it caused her to have to walk at graduation knowing that he was also walking in the ceremony. She said one of the hardest things was knowing that if she was at something like a friend's birthday party or she had to go to the gym, she always had in the back of her mind that she might encounter him there. And do we know what the possible outcome of this case is? Did Title IX and legal experts have any insight on that? Experts I spoke with said the case will most likely settle because the university won't want to get down into the weeds of a grueling public trial where all of their shortcomings would become public. Experts also said that most likely there will be compensation to come out of the settlement and either costs or attorney fees, but also there's a possibility that the institution would change their policies regarding cases of sexual misconduct. And this is a conversation that Anika has hoped to continue, making sure that there can be institutional changes that come out of it that make survivors feel more safe on campus. Here's Alex Zalkin, who is Anika's lawyer, talking about what this case will mean for future survivors looking to report. I, I think it's a, a really um, amazing thing that Anika did today because 
it really drives the conversation and it also lets other universities know that they can't ignore survivors, that they need to respond to survivors in a way that's reasonable and adequate. Otherwise, they're exposed to liability. Danny, what did experts say we can expect in the future regarding this lawsuit? Well, the experts didn't want to comment on exact time frame, but they said that it wouldn't be unusual for this to take one to two years as a federal investigation. Well, thanks for coming on this week, Danny, and helping me report on this lawsuit. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm here with Sarah Roach, a news editor this week, and she is going to talk to us about a story that The Hatchet has been following since the beginning of the academic year. The graduate students have been trying to unionize, and now they're really stepping up things as far as their involvement in this unionization. So can you tell me uh, what is the latest? Graduate students have met with Provost Forrest Maltzman on Thursday, and that was one of their first demands in an effort to get a third-party election so that they can become a graduate student union. Earlier in the academic year, Maltzman, he rejected their proposal to have a third-party election, so since then, graduate students have really been pushing to So this is the first time they've met with the administration? Yes. Okay. Yeah, this is the first time they've ever been able to get a meeting with Maltzman, and it came out of the sit-in that they had on Thursday morning where they basically just sat outside of Maltzman's office and they sat inside the lobby of Rice Hall and protested the lack of health care benefits that they're having and just demanding that they get a meeting with Maltzman so that they can establish a graduate student union. But when they came out of the meeting with Maltzman, they said that they were disheartened by his like, continual refusal to get them a third party election because Maltzman said he's waiting until they file with National Labor Relations Board. But graduate students don't want to do that because the NLRB has historically opposed graduate student unions under Republican presidential administrations. Graduate students know that if they were to file with the NLRB, then they wouldn't really get what they're looking for and it would just lead to a dead end. And graduate students said that they believe that Maltzman knows this. So, and that's why the he wants them to file because he knows that it won't go through. Well, that is just what graduate students are speculating. Right. So they're saying that they're frustrated because they can't go through the NLRB. They just want to go straight to a third party election. And until they get a third party election, they said they're only going to escalate their efforts from here. Going back to the third party election, what exactly would that look like? And can you just explain what that is? A third-party election would allow graduate students to vote on whether they can form a graduate student union without going directly through the federal government. Okay, but who is the third party and who is the second party? Like, are they, like, if the grad students were just voting, obviously they would vote. Like, Mm -hmm. who, why is there there a third party? So graduate students were just allowed to have a third-party election um, earlier this month. And what that means is that a neutral third party, other than the NLRB, would be able to oversee this election, and they wouldn't have as much of a say in what the result of it is. Was that a big step for them to get the meeting? I know they weren't happy after it, but did they feel like at least getting the meeting meant something? Yeah, I mean, the meeting was the first step to to even start a conversation with officials because the whole academic year, the first thing that they were being rejected was a meeting to even have a discussion about unionization in the first place. What is kind of the future? It's almost summer. Like, are they planning to keep this up until then or like, are, do they have plans through the summer? 
Yeah, something that one of the graduate students said was that they think the university is waiting for their efforts to wind down because they're approaching the summer, but they said they're going to come back in the fall with more graduate students because more will enroll and more will join that effort. They're only going to escalate until they get what they want. Here's graduate student Jackie Baldwin. Our goal today was to leave that meeting with written confirmation that we would both be moving to pursue recognition of the union through a third party election. Um, and we did not get that, and so we will continue as usual. But it was effective for, for getting to sit down with them. Um, they're, you know, kind, professional folks. Um, but, um, and, and that's why it's disappointing, is because um, we know that they know what issues the university is facing and the issues the graduates and workers are facing, facing and that they, that they don't care enough to um, come to an agreement. But also, you talk to some people who have been involved in unionization efforts before, so what are they saying is the likelihood of this happening for graduate students at GW? One student we spoke with was a graduate student from Columbia, and they were granted certification from the NLRB under Obama's administration. But last week, Columbia officials rejected their proposal again to unionize. And right now, Columbia students are on strike because they said that they're disappointed that even though they had gotten a bid from the NLRB, the university is still set in stone in what they want to do, regardless of whether or not they have this organization on their back. But even though the university is telling them to go do it under the expectation that it's never going to going to happen under Trump's administration. Even if they are getting it, they're still being rejected by the university. So, I know that you talked to some experts from labor relations programs, and I was wondering what were their thoughts on this whole interaction between graduate students and the administration? These experts were basically saying that the underlying reason the university is opposing these efforts is mostly for financial reasons, because if they're rejecting a proposal to have a third-party election so that they can unionize, say they are actually able to unionize, they actually do form this union, then that means that the university has to dig out of their own pocket to give graduate students more money for their work as TAs and RAs. And they also have to give them better health care, which that would mean losing revenue because experts are saying like they do profit off of, off of graduate students. I mean, they're teaching classes and they're also students, so they're paying and they're teaching undergraduates. So if they were to give them more money for the work that they do because they are union, then that would cut into the university's profit. Thanks for updating us with what they're doing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sarah is also here to talk about her story on admissions numbers, which saw a slight increase this year. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Leah. Tell me, what happened to admissions numbers this year? The admissions rate went up for the third year in a row, so it went up to a 41.8, which is about a full percentage point up from what it was last year, where it sat at about a 41%. And historically, we've been seeing this trend where more and more students are applying to more colleges than ever before. How is this impacting admissions? Some experts are saying that the university is admitting more students because they're predicting that the students are less likely to actually enroll in GW. On average, there was a report that went out about a year ago that said high school students apply to about seven colleges on average. So being cognizant of that and admitting more students with that underlying notion that 
they might not actually attend GW is something that could play into the increased acceptance rate. But also, the university has been trying to recruit more students, um, especially their prospective, their admitted students, to enroll in the university after they've already received their acceptance letters. This year, the university held 21 info sessions with smaller groups so that students could have a more intimate setting to get to know the university before they decide whether or not they want to enroll. And with this year's acceptance rate being just more than 40%, how does that impact GW's overall prestige and kind of their reputation with an increasing acceptance rate? Experts had mixed takes on what that means for the university. One expert said that students shouldn't put that much emphasis on what the acceptance rate is to determine whether or not they want to go to a prestigious school or a competitive school, whereas other experts were saying that when you continue to bring up the acceptance rate, it just means that the university is getting less and less competitive, but it doesn't necessarily weigh into whether or not students will enroll when they see that this number has crept up. Even though it's gone up over the past three years, four years ago, the acceptance rate was at a 45%. So it's still lower than that number a few years ago. The acceptance rate is more the university intentionally trying to make sure that they are enrolling a set class and making sure that students will enroll given the increase in the number of schools students are applying to. They want to make sure that they're going to get a solid class. Why would the university be concerned if they didn't have consistent admissions numbers or even have an increase? What would be the negative impact of that? If the university did not enroll the class size that they intend to, which is typically about 2,500 students, then they could lose tuition revenue from students. So they wouldn't be making as much money from the tuition that students are paying. Here's Paul Seeger, the admissions director at the University of Washington, talking about what it would mean if the acceptance rate went up. Well, thanks for coming on, Sarah, and be sure to keep us up updated on enrollment numbers, which are coming up in the next few weeks. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This week, our culture editor, Matt, is back to talk about a story about a professor who actually won a Pulitzer Prize. So can you tell us a little bit about how he did it? Sure. Well, Steve Elfers is an adjunct professor at the Corcoran School of Arts and Design, and he teaches a year-long graduate class on multimedia storytelling, but he is a managing editor at USA Today. And so he, along with 30 other reporters from three different publications, USA Today and other, like a satellite network called Arizona Central or AZ.com, they won a Pulitzer for their work on The Wall, which is an interactive article that deals with the border between Mexico and the U.S., So the Pulitzer Prizes were kind of just announced, but how was he feeling about having won that? They were, like, pretty positive they were going to win the award, but it was still a shock, and they were jumping for joy, obviously. It's not every day. You, like, get to see a lot of your friends and reporters win Pulitzers and stuff, but it's, like, a different beast when it's you and your team. Can we get into a little bit more of... What exactly was the story? Like, why was this Pulitzer worthy? So, yeah, definitely. So the wall was basically a lot of on-the-ground reporting of individuals who were affected by the prevailing narrative of the border that Donald Trump has been positing a lot of times since his election and since he was put into office. And so I think the reporters felt they needed to tell all sides of the story and give people an interactive and visual representation of 
the space that keeps being mentioned, but we're so far removed from. And so the project itself was a nine-month ordeal, and that included getting video footage of the entire border. So it's 40 hours of footage that they collected of, like, you can click on the interactive website and, and basically be taken to a virtual reality. But he, he like, was in charge of managing all of this. Correct? Yes. So he was the managing video editor of the project. And so while he didn't have the juicy, like, on-the-ground reporting to do, that was left up to, you know, the Arizona team who pitched the story to USA Today. And because it was such an ordeal and such an audacious kind of in- investment to do this kind of in-depth reporting, it required a lot of people. And so he was one of those people that oversaw the timeline and the workflow of the projects, of the video footage, because it was so much to be collected and then translated onto one website. So I think he thinks that the visual aspect was essential to getting across the impact and the severity. And here is Steve Elfers now talking about how he believes visual storytelling is essential. I mean, I think all storytelling and certainly visual storytelling has the power to connect emotionally. And I think one of the first challenges in storytelling is to make the audience care about what it is they're seeing. So I think we're, we're, we're visual creatures. We go to movies, we watch TV. I think we respond visually, but we also, and we respond emotionally. So if we're trying to inform and engage and delight an audience, then video has the power to combine sound and motion and type and music and all the things that can move us to both understanding and and potentially action. Thanks for telling us about this Pulitzer Prize winner on our own campus. Yeah, that's a really cool story. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editor Matt Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen, video editor Ariana Dunham, and contributing photo editor Ethan Stoller. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Danny Grace and Sarah Roach for joining us. See you next week.